Thanks to the breakfast team for some great radio to start the day with. But stay tuned because next up is the community radio science show that needs your help to find a new name. If you have one, send it in. Welcome to the finest half hour of science radio in the fashionable end of the Western Spiral Arm of the Galaxy. Of insert your name here. We're in summer mode, so everything's relaxed. I'm Ian Wolfe, and in the studio with me, with lots of stuff, uh, Adam Richardson. Hello. Matt Francis. Hello. Jackie Pepper. Hi. And Chris Stewart. Hello. Now, Adam, you have a story about DNA? That's right. Um, just recently, an Australian scientist, Dr. Michael Fennick, from CSIRO's Genome, Health and Nutrigenomics Laboratory in Adelaide has found out that alcohol can actually expose your DNA to more damage. He did this by getting a, a, a bunch of young men and asking them politely if they drink 300 millilitres of either complete red wine, red wine with alcohol removed, or the alcohol that was removed from the red wine. And he, uh, he asked them to drink the, drink the, the wine or alcohol or whatever and then after a few minutes, he took a sample of blood and exposed it to gamma radiation and measured the amount of damage that occurred. He found that the alcohol-free red wine significantly reduced the DNA damage, uh, while the full red wine had some damage and the alcohol on its own had significant damage. So what this indicates is that alcohol can actually cause significant damage, well, weaken your DNA, but the other chemicals in red wine can, in, can act to reinforce it. So the aim of this story is not to get drunk and stand in front of gamma radiation. Yeah, standing in front of gamma radiation is generally a bad thing. But I didn't quite catch it. So if you just have normal red wine with the alcohol and the other stuff, is that better or worse? That's worse than the alcohol-free red wine, but better than the pure alcohol. So the alcohol is doing damage, and the rest of the chemicals in there are reversing the damage. Okay. So you, sh so you shouldn't drink red wine still? Well, you can drink some, but you should. Once again, it says you shouldn't drink it to to excess. And if you go out binge drinking, all of this damage that the alcohol is causing to your DNA makes you appear a lot older. So you'll age slower if you don't binge drink, but you mm. might not have as much fun. But you'll remember it. <laughs> That's right. You'll remember your youth that way. Or not remember it, perhaps, depending on how much you drank that night. Of course. Fair enough. So, any other DNA sort of things? Well, Adam was just speaking about sort of damaging your DNA and I've got a guy who's damaged his career by well, playing with DNA. It's Dr. Wu Suk Huang who has just been outed as fraud frauding a lot of his research. Now, this is the same guy he went on to... What did he do, Ian? He went on to clone the dog Snuffy. Um, yes. He's been cloning lots of things. He Lots of human embryos, hasn't he? Lots of he? human embryos, yes. Um, creating patient-specific stem cell lines. Therapeutic and cloning, isn't he? His work is the main proof that therapeutic cloning is actually worth doing. Yeah, he's sort of this national hero over in Korea where he's from. and um, But there's been a bit of speculation because none of his stuff has actually been published in any respectable journal. And it's lack of proof. Well, I thought um, part of the problem was that his most recent stuff did get peer-reviewed and published, but it turned out that one of his co-workers has admitted that most of the stem cell lines weren't real. That oh, really? 
I heard so. one of his researchers was donating um, cells for the research. That donating was the first scandal. Oh, that was marks. the first scandal. Sorry? Donating in quotation marks. No, no, apparently um, she was happy to donate, but it's unethical because he has power over her and therefore there could be coercion. Um, in oh. Korea, this is considered to be a, a duty and a, and a good thing, but in, in Western democratic countries, it's considered to be coercion. So it's just ethical problems, but are nothing compared to the fact that it's totally fake. Well, except for the dog. Well, yeah, Snuppy <laughs> you is, could go is real. If you wanted to. And in fact, the researchers, <laughs> the researchers who've been going through his entire career with a fine tooth comb, apparently, sub- really surprised to find that any of it was real. Were you saying earlier that it's harder to clone a dog than it would be to do a lot of the the stuff with humans that he's been planning on doing and looking at doing? That's what the reviewer said. He, they, he was actually surprised because he thought it was a more difficult job to successfully clone a dog than to clone a human, so he would have expected the fraud to go that far and know it's real. Well, I suppose the lesson that we can learn here is that you might be able to fraud your results for first-year chemistry, but if you're planning on getting into the limelight and trying to share it with the world, perhaps it might be just a bit of a good thing to you know, back it all up with some info and some actual research there. Real research is recommended. Mm. The world will thank you for it. So, Matt, you have something to do with genetics as well, a story for us? Yeah, r- rough, roughly in that, in that sort of area. There's, um, we've all heard of Jurassic Park, obviously, which was the, uh, the, the novel and movie where, where scientists recreated the Jurassic era or well, the dinosaurs. Well, Triassic, really. Well, well there's, there's, I guess, debate. But, um, but <laughs> this, this one is actually going to happen. Well, it's, it's planned to be. I think the funding's there, at least for the first part of it, which is the um, Pleistocene Park, which was a, a, a much more recent era than the dinosaurs, um, which was between 10,000 and 100,000 years ago, which basically covered massive ice age. Um, and so during that time, you had things like the woolly mammoths and a, and a whole heap of sort of giant herbivores and all kinds of things that did, that are the ancestors of a lot of modern sort of animals. Aren't they ones that we might have killed off? Well, this is basically what they want to what they want to find out um, because the theory is that um, you know it was just a sudden change in temperature or whatever that killed off all these animals. But there's a theory that around the time that they all died off was also the time when sort of man was starting to really kick on in, in his evolution or, or our evolution. Um, so what they, they want to do is basically they've got a um, 160,000 uh, hectare area of Siberia um, that they want to cordon off um, and try and recreate um, this ecosystem that, that was there as closely as possible with, with modern sort of descendants. But the, 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 the DNA sort of link into this is there's also thoughts that, that maybe if we can get from the, the frozen woolly mammoths that we found, maybe we can get some mammoths back in there if we get this thing really going. We just have to be careful how we just state them. Who's, how big are mammoth calves? Yeah. Excellent, excellent stuff. I believe they're doing something similar in California, the same sort of era. Yeah, well, there, there are yes, there are sort of um, collaborations with between the American and Russian groups on this. Of, of course, by the time we do this, global warming m- might have made Siberia a bit too warm for mammoths. Yeah, well, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> You're listening to Community Radio's International Science Show Without a Name. Please send one in. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe and we're in summer mode. Now, I had some people bail me up at the front door the other day trying to sell me green electricity from a company called Jack Green. They want renewable resources to be used for electricity and for me to sign over my payments to them. They told me they had solar power, wind power and low-impact hydroelectricity. 
I asked them where the solar power farms were because I haven't heard of any. And they admitted they don't have any. They've just got a pretty picture to show me. Um, so I asked them about the wind farms because I thought that'd be pretty cool. Wind's, wind's green. And they said they thought there was one up in Newcastle. Um, this was a saleswoman and her trainee, and I think they need a bit more training. Then we went on to the hydroelectricity. I wasn't letting them go yet. And I asked if it was any more than the Snowy Mountain Scheme, which is a state government scheme that's been going for a very long time. And they, they weren't sure about that one. So I looked them up on the net. And, well, for a start, um, it's one of those systems, because we're all part of the grid, if I use up a kilowatt, then another kilowatt gets generated and makes up for what I've used from coal, from a wind farm or for whatever. But um, there's only four wind farms in New South Wales, and on the website, none of them are owned by Jack Green. I have a feeling that they'd be buying wholesale electricity and selling it on to me without actually having any wind farms at all. Um, I don't know if anyone else has had green people come up to the door, but um, I don't think there's a lot of huge amounts of investment in renewable resources going on at the moment, just government subsidies. Yeah, I guess so. One thing you did mention, though, was low-impact hydroelectric. What's the difference between low-impact and regular hydroelectric? I, well, think, I think it sounds nicer, really. Uh, <laughs> I mean, well, there is, that. is there any hydro <clears throat> in New South Wales apart from the snowy scheme um, that, that they could be claiming to be using unless they're just sticking a water wheel in a, in a river somewhere or, or something? Well, the saleswomen didn't know. Um, looking on the state government website, they didn't have any signs of it that I could find. I'd probably have to ring up somebody and ask for it. But... Low impact is because things like the usual dams are very, very high impact and cause massive damage to the environment, when you, both from the river that's dammed and from where the river would have gone. So hydroelectricity usually isn't low impact. So it, it looks almost like a con, but they're endorsed by the state government and Planet Arc. So, and if you look at all the recommendations that people give us to be green and to help the environment, they do suggest that we use green electricity from an accredited program. Now, in other science news, um, Jackie, um, what's happening in the murder business? Yes, well, we've got some researchers over at Nagasaki University who've found a new... or They've found something which might be able to make a difference to forensics, and this is looking at identifying the difference between a suffocated person or a... What are we going to say? Strangulated? Strangulated person. I was like, S, S, it's in there somewhere. Now, what they've done is these guys have gone off and they've taken two groups of mice and they've strangled some with a little Aww. thing. Did this all, pass the all ethics very, All very humanely, all very humanely. They humanely strangled mice. A humane piano wire. They gave them wire. anaesthetic. <laughs> Stop laughing at me. No, they've gone off and they've strangled some mice and then they've decapitated the others. All in the... <laughs> <Yes>. Lovely. <laughs> Fantastic. No Frankenstein. All in <laughs> All in the name of saving lives and catching criminals. And catching criminals, that's right. So it's all in um, the greater good. Well, they've analysed the tissue around the necks and what they've found is that there's four genes in the mice that have been strangled because, of course, they've had more time to sort of realise, oh, I'm dying. Um, And so they've found four genes in there which are producing RNA. And if you don't know, you've got your DNA and these molecules come and they bind to the DNA and they produce RNA and then the RNA goes on to produce proteins and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what they've found is that there are genes that are still working there, whereas that's not happening in the, in the mice that haven't been strangled. So what they're thinking is, well, maybe we can identify people who are being strangled by 
different genes which are working and because at the moment I don't know how aware you are of different forensic techniques if you watch all of your CSI and crime shows looking at strangulation and suffocation it's very very nitty and just fine tuning and a lot of guesswork a lot of it too is looking at how bodies are found and all sorts of things so now we might be able to have a biochemical way of finding out a cause of death. So is this connected with the bruising that's caused by strangulation as opposed to suffocation? I don't know. Well, you you do get some subtle, like, or you do get bruising on some cases, but I assume that there are a lot where it's very hard to determine and there wouldn't be a lot of um, bruising. So this might be a technique where you can decipher between the two even if there is no bruising or other external factors. Or just a backup. Mm, that too. More ways of determining what sort of crime occurred and how someone was killed. Fair enough. So what else have you got over there, Ian? Well, somebody's had a brilliant idea at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Dr Isaac Berzin, who's a big fan of algae. He was originally going to use algae, which is a little single-celled plant that sort of grows all over the bottom of the ocean, um, for the International Space Station, which is now a bit of a joke, so he's not doing that anymore. But then he realised that you could attach this to a conventional power generator that's putting out lots of carbon dioxide and it eats carbon dioxide, water and sunlight and produces lots of biomass. So if you put quite a large amount of this, um, we're talking, you know, several several hectares worth of algae, um, very close to the stacks, they'll soak up the CO2 and you can get biodiesel fuel out of them, vegetable oil that you can burn in diesel, and you also the stuff that's left over, all the dried algal flakes, can be turned into ethanol. Wow. So you get to burn the carbon dioxide twice for the same amount of energy, well for much, much more energy. And you keep you get to keep on doing this. You can harvest the algae every day. So he's got venture capital and they've got a pilot plant that's put for a, a thousand megawatts and uh, that we're scaling up for more plants. So you just have to put it near a power plant. You don't have to sort of filter the exhaust through the water or something like that. Just literally putting it next door is okay and enough. One company is filtering, another company is putting it next door. And that's how it works. Due note il ritornello era già nella pelle di quei due il corpo di lei mandava vampate africane lui sembrava un coccodrillo i sexes spingevano a fondo come ciclisti gregari in fuga la canzone andava avanti sempre più affondata nell'aria quei due continuavano Da lei saliva frordi coloniali che giungevano a lui come da una di quelle drogherie di una volta che tenevano la porta aperta davanti alla primavera.
qualcuno nei paraggi cominciava a sternutire il ventilatore ronzava immenso dal soffitto esausto i sax ipnotizzati dai movimenti di lei si spandevano un rumore di gomma e di vernice da lui di cuoio le luci saettavano sul volto pechinese della cassiera che fumava al mentolo altri sternotivano senza malizia e la canzone andava elegante l'orchestra era partita decolava decolava I'm not my boogie man you read me primitabu il pavimento solo il batterista nell'ombra guardava con sguardi cattivi quei due danzavano bravi una nuova cassiera sostituiva la prima questa qui aveva gli occhi da lupa e masticava caramelle alla scane quella musica continuava era una canzone che diceva e non diceva l'orchestra si dondolava come un pallizio davanti a un mare venerato quei due sapevano memoria dove volevano arrivare buoghe buoghe e poi si rifugiò nel nulla era un mondo adulto si sbagliava da professionista Come to the lighter side of the science news. So, Adam, how is it? What's the latest in the science of how to be attractive to the opposite sex? Well, you'll be pleased to note that the scientists haven't been sitting idle and they've figured out how to carve up the dance floor. Dr. William Brown from the Centre for Human Evolutionary Studies at Rutgers University has actually discovered that symmetric dancers are spunkier to women than asymmetric dancers. 
This is kind of follows on from research that's been done over the last couple of years about symmetric animals generally regarded as more attractive than asymmetric animals. But now it also shows in the case of movement. Now they discovered this by getting 180 odd Jamaican teenagers dancing for a minute to the same tune. And they used motion capture technology to create computer animated figures that duplicated their movement. They then showed the faceless and gender neutral computerized dancing figures to about 150 of the dancers' peers. And they found that the dancers who moved symmetrically were generally regarded as better movers, better dancers, more attractive in general. They also found that not only did women overwhelmingly prefer performance by symmetric men, hint, hint, guys, listen up to that, but they, when, when they showed the women the women dancing, there was a much lower trend. It was mu much less of an impact on the women that were watching the dancers. So I guess the, the key story is to, to try and keep it all symmetric on the dance floor and who knows, it might just help. And I really wish this was a visual medium because Adam's symmetric dancing in the foyer out there was really something to be held. I'm sure any young lady at home would be very, very attracted. What can I say, ladies? Adam, how did they make sure that the subjects couldn't tell what the gender was of the dancers? Because they didn't actually show them the dancers. They, they had those, if you've ever seen with sportsmen, they put those little funky yellow golf balls on them and they film them with a camera and a computer goes through each frame, figures out what all the movement's doing and then makes a little stick figure. They did essentially that. So they showed them dancing computer images that had no facial features and no gender specific, no body shape or anything like that. So there's actually, although the people who were reviewing the dancers knew all the dancers by name, they were close friends, but they couldn't tell who was who from just looking. I wonder if symmetric dancing means good dancing or is, is it Well, if else? the ladies like it, what's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, keeping that in mind, story now from Australia. There's an Australian man who built up so much static electricity in his clothes that he burned carpets, melted plastic, and sparked a mass evacuation of a building. This is Warnable, a small Western Victorian town where Frank Clure was wearing a synthetic nylon jacket and a woolen shirt when he went for a job interview. Now, anyone who's played with high school science will know that um, plastic and wool will give you a static charge. But in this case, it, he walked along the carpet and apparently 40,000 volts of static electricity built up. Within about five minutes, the carpet spontaneously combusted. Now, naturally, nobody knew at the time what was going on, so the firemen evacuated the building and they figured it had to be an electrical fire, so they cut off the electricity. Um, there were scorch marks on the carpet and a crackling noise, so everybody, including Mr. Kluwer, left the building, whereupon he scorched plastic in his car and realised there was a problem. They measured the electric charge on his clothing and found the 40,000 volts. Uh, the Reuters report doesn't say how they measured the static charge on his clothes. I'd love to know what the firemen used. Um, they're saying the charge was close enough to cause spontaneously combustion, um, sorry, spontaneous combustion, and in 35 years of firefighting, he's never come across anything like it. So perhaps there's some way to store electricity for your iPod this way. I don't know, <laughs> or recharge your mobile phone. 40,000 volts, that's what, a three, four centimetre spark? It's quite a big spark. You wouldn't want to touch a doorknob. 
Or anything at all, really? <laughs> <laughs> he must have just thought he was nervous with all his hair standing on end and everything like that for this job. Maybe he had a fro. So it's not the way you want to go into a job interview. It's not the way you want to leave a job interview. Don't want to shake hands with the boss. No, no, no. no. So, Matt... Well, Amateur astronomers, what can they do at home? Well, what can they? Well, I'm sure some people may have heard of the SETI at home, which was SETI, which is the search for extra, extraterrestrial intelligence, um, which were you know the, the telescopes listening for aliens broadcasting to us. And they had a bunch of data, heaps and heaps of data, not ma- not much processing time to do it. So they distributed the processing around the world to everyone's PCs. Um, but what they've done now, um, there's another probe, Stardust, that's gone and collected a bunch of basically. Stardust um, that's hanging around in the in the solar system from comets and and exploding stars, old supernovas and stuff like that. It's collected a bunch of this. It's coming back to Earth, and um, they're ta- going to take a bunch of photos. Um, and they need thousands and thousands of hours to just look through these photos and try and find these these grains. But unlike SETI at home, uh, volunteers for this one, um, which they need tens of thousands of volunteers, will actually literally have a look at a, at a photo and just send NASA back a yes, there's a dust grain there. Um, so if you, I think I think you can sign up uh, on on the website. And, so this uh, is actual work for NASA. The actual work for NASA, but but you get the cool kind of feeling that you're part of this. You know, this. Uh, I suppose that's better so than being cool paid. CV. Well, that that, that does. <laughs> Volunteered uh, for NASA. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's right. But I think it's it's very important to because we don't know we we pick up sort of the 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 signal in terms of how these dust grains interact with light and radio waves and that kind of stuff. But we de- we we can't get close to them. So I think this would be very very important sort of. Uh, Analysis of actually finding what the stuff out there is actually like. So, could be very interesting in in a couple of years when the results are in. So we could be using all our computers and our spare time for actually finding out what the stuff the world is, the universe is made of, rather than just running a screensaver in the background that might pick up a signal if we're lucky. <laughs> Something <laughs> like that. Summer Science Show. If you'd like to contact us, if you have a suggestion for a name for the show that, that does not infringe trademarks, but it's still kind of cool and science-related, you can reach us via email at discovery at 2scr.com. That's discovery at 2scr.com. Or check out our website, www.2scr.com forward slash science. Contributing to the program were Adam Richardson, Jackie Peffer, Chris Stewart, Matt Francis. This program has been produced by Chris Stewart with technical support from Matt Francis in the studios of 2SCR Sydney. Insert science name here is broadcast nationally via Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on The Nameless Science Show. <laughs>